Welcome to Raise Your Average. I'm Pierre Daly, Managing Editor at AdvisorAnalyst.com. Co-hosting with me today is Adam Butler, CIO at Resolve Asset Management Global. Ahan Menon, founder and strategist at Prometheus Research, is here with us. Ahan, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Pierre, thank you so much for having me on. Um, it's a pleasure to be here. I've heard some of your shows before, and I'm really excited to contribute. Awesome. Yeah, I, I, I had a chance to uh, listen to one of your podcasts, the most recent one uh, that you did with uh, Andy Constan. And um, I think that was your most recent episode, and who was previously with uh, uh, Bridgewater, right? Yeah. And, um, yeah. So how's it going? Where are you coming to us from? Um, I'm coming to you guys from sunny San Diego. No, that's nice. <laughs> how's the weather? Yeah, it is nice. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, can't complain. I mean, well, lately you can, but uh, yeah, uh, we've we've had a bit <laughs> of a tone with the weather recently, but. Today is a little bit nicer, so I'm actually talking to you guys from outside for those guys that are yeah. listening. You're not you're not getting the Has, uh, the blizzard. <laughs> no. We we actually had hail. Um, I would say day before yesterday, yeah. which has got to be pretty unusual for you down there, right? Eh? Oh, yeah. extremely. Yeah. Yeah. Once in a 39 year event. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Right. All right. So Ahan, I want to introduce you properly here. Uh, before we get started, Ahan Menon is founder and chief strategist at Prometheus Research. Ahan is a highly regarded expert in the world of quantitative macroeconomic research and provides elite market findings and economic insights to the public and institutional investors through Prometheus and publishes his thoughts in his very popular Prometheus Research Substack. Prometheus is known for its data-driven approach to delivering real-time insights into the evolution of markets and the economy. Through this approach, he and his team have been able to combine their insights algorithmically to create rules-based portfolios that help guide investors to achieve equity-like returns with much lower risk. Prior to founding Prometheus, Ahan gained a well-rounded perspective of markets through his work in the retail research business at FXDD, and on the buy side at LightSky Macro. Ahan holds an undergraduate degree in finance from NYU Stern School of Business. The views and opinions expressed in this broadcast are those of the individual guests and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of AdvisorAnalyst.com or of our guests. This broadcast is meant to be for informational purposes only. Nothing discussed in this broadcast is intended to be considered as advice. Did I get that right? You nailed it. That that's everything. <laughs> right on. All right, I'm relieved now. Um, I, can, <laughs> I can relax and. <laughs> okay, good. So, um, Ahan, tell us about the uh, the arc of your career, um, how you got started, what inspired you to start uh, Prometheus. First, how you got started, and and then what what inspired you to Prome uh, start Prometheus Research, and and what sets what you do apart from other quantitative macroeconomic research firms? Yeah, um, you know, I'll actually, um, if it's all right with you, I'll take the first half of the question uh, first because I think that we can probably work backwards a little bit. And yeah. so, um, as you mentioned, I'm the founder of Prometheus Research, which is a systematic macro research firm dedicated to the democratization of finance. And so what we're trying to do is we're trying to create the best macro research engine in the business. and make its insights available to every investor regardless of their size. Essentially, we're trying to create 
a moving picture of the economy, which we can leverage to help investors make smart investment decisions over the course of the economic cycle. The way we do that is relatively unique in that we spend a lot of time trying to understand how the economy and markets work. So we're really mechanically focused and we're constantly trying to codify that understanding into a systematic rules-based process to create durable portfolios. Um, the overarching goal is really to create a holistic suite of products that helps investors of all sizes navigate macroeconomic cycles. So whether you're looking for a big picture economic cycle analysis or you're just trying to look how to trade next week, we got you covered. Um, reflecting on my journey a little bit, um, it's funny, but it seems like my life experiences and my professional experiences have kind of prepared me to start Prometheus. So prior to starting Prometheus, as you mentioned, I have a background from both the institutional buy side and the retail sell side and a lifelong passion for markets. I think I bought my first stock when I was 13. Um, and so I started my career on the research team at a macro hedge fund called LightSky Macro, like you mentioned. And then I continued in a very different setting at a retail brokerage called FXDD. And I think that these experiences were, you know, in some ways the complete opposite in terms of the pace of life and in terms of kind of the demands of the job. But they were extremely complementary. And, you know, my time at, on the buy side, it really gave me an insight into, you know, how elite macro finance actually works and, you know, the, the tricks of the trade and what it truly takes to have a durable edge in markets. And on the other side of the coin, I think my, my time in research really gave me the breathing room to be a little bit more creative, innovative, and also understand the needs of a much broader population than just institutional finance. And over, over my time, what I realized is that there's an unreasonably large gap between institutions and individuals, particularly when it comes to macro. So in mid-2022, uh, I decided we're going to close that gap, and we launched uh, Prometheus. So there's, you know, we're a two-person research team and growing, and it was, uh, it's been a great experience so far. Uh, 2022 was definitely the year to do uh, macro research, uh, and... Uh, We've been able to help a lot of people navigate a pretty tough cycle through our work. And we plan to keep doing that, which uh, I'm looking forward to doing some more of today with you guys. Awesome. That was a good summary. Yeah. Um, on one thing that's always, um, I mean, I've, I've long been a passionate follower of macro and, and keen observer of um, um, macroeconomic modeling. I've always wondered how you navigate the tension between the um, market's tendency to, you know, the market is always discounting what it sees in the future, right? So, you know, agents in the market are themselves observing what's happening in the economy. And then they're, they're using their observations with their own set of models to guide their investment decision, putting real capital to work on a day-to-day -day basis, sometimes a minute-to-minute a minute or second-to-second -second basis. Um, how do you navigate the tension between the market as a forward-looking discounting mechanism and the utility of um, macroeconomic series, like, um, you know, series that guide growth expectations or inflation expectations, et cetera? Um, any general comments on that? Yeah, I think I think that's a very interesting and kind of relevant um, discussion to be had, right? As a as a macro investor, 
the ideal state of the world tends to be a situation where there is something in the future that you can somehow estimate, um, which is just not priced into markets. And I think the the important thing to recognize when um, doing that is, first off, it's going to be really hard, right? Because you're talking about a complex dynamic system and actually accurately forecasting in any meaningful way how it's going to evolve is going to be really hard. And then I think that um, what really lends itself to you being able to do that is having a comprehensive approach that allows you to roughly estimate when you're going to have second derivative changes in economic conditions. And so what we've generally found in our work is that, yes, indeed, markets are discounting mechanisms that tend to be forward-looking. But what there also seems to be is that markets have a tendency to extrapolate current, very current conditions almost linearly into the future. And so if you can manage to understand what the the likely gap between a potential acceleration and what's discounted in terms of a linear path, that is really kind of the opportunity set that you're going for in macro. And so I think that the you know, if you look through time, the largest economic surprises in history tend to be more along these lines of these second derivative changes rather than some sort of, you know, straight linear path that can be easily extrapolated by markets. So a good example of that, I think, would be, say, inflation in uh, the post-GFC era, where, you know, all you needed was a simple ARIMA model, right? And all you needed to do was extrapolate out 2% for near a decade. And as a result, inflation volatility was, you know, not an impact on aggregate markets or portfolios or anything like that. But the second you have this state change of, you know, in inflation meaningly moving away from this, you know, kind of stable mean, that's when you start to have these real changes. And so that's what I think um, is really what we try to get at is understand those, you know, the state changes in the trend. Yeah, I like that. So... Um, I like. I think it was Mark Yusko who calls it a variant perception, right? It's mm-hmm. the delta between um, your estimates of where growth and inflation or whatever other variables you're forecasting um, are pointing and what the market is discounting. And I think, well, I, I'd, I'd love to hear your thoughts on which side of that may be more or less difficult than the other. My intuition suggests that it's often harder to determine what the market is is currently discounting than it is to forecast the first or second derivative of of economic um of the trajectory of of economic variables but i could be off any intuition there so i think um i think from from what we've seen it's uh it's kind of the opposite in the sense that I think that what markets are discounting, right? You can, um, you can do it one of two ways, right? So, so one is the ex ante way of doing it, right? And then there's the ex post way of saying, like, you know, could we have in history kind of understood how this worked? And so, what we've seen in our study is that most economic data surprises, right? And so, the economic data surprise is really what captures um, the difference between this acceleration and the steady state, and those typically tend to tend to happen just in a case where there's some sort of nonlinear move. So you tend to have some amount of stability in expectations. 
And it's when you have data that evolves dramatically different from those expectations that you have essentially a re-rating of those expectations. And so um, I would say that the expectations component is fairly stable until it isn't, right? And what usually ends up marginally moving it is some kind of, you know, acceleration or impulse in the actual data. Um, and so what you're trying to do in a very ideal state of the world is say, you know, I have some way of knowing when that state change is going to be, which is going to force this re-rating of expectations. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. So, so the idea, I think, if I'm understanding it correctly, is um, you have a data series. Let's call it a macroeconomic data series. Um, the market tends to extrapolate the most recent, let's say, year-over-year -year path or quarter over quarter, or sometimes month over month, depends on the data set. But that it's generally a process of linear ex uh, extrapolation, right? Mm -hmm. And if you've got a more sophisticated model that is giving you high confidence that the market's linear extrapolation is actually quite a ways away from how the actual trajectory of that variable is going to evolve then you have a delta between your expectation and market expectation that can potentially be acted upon in order to anticipate expected market movement. And you're not exactly. actually trying to price, you know, what the market is currently discounting directly from looking at market pricing, mm -hmm. but rather you're discounting the, eco the market's expectation of each individual economic variable in determining how your forecast differs from the market's forecast based on linear extrapolation. Yeah, exactly. And so, you know, as we get closer to the present and more recent history, you have better and better and more comprehensive data of what um, market's expectations are for given data sets. So, you know, whether it's payrolls, whether it's initial claims, whatever, what have you, right? So as we get closer to the present, we have more and more comprehensive data in terms of what market's expectations are. So you can actually back out, you know, what markets are expecting for your GDP, you can, if you know how to do those calculations, right? And what we find actually, which is a very interesting thing, is if we um, simulate, you know, what that expected path is relative to um, what most recent history is, those things actually track very closely. And so what you end up with is if you're really trying to capture these, you know, these state changes, what you really need to be tracking, so if I wanted to create a synthetic version of this economic surprise, what I really needed to be tracking really is the acceleration or the second derivative in economic data. And I think that that's the, the thing that is not very well appreciated in terms of all the people that are very focused on the second derivative in data. But I think that this is kind of the underlying mechanism that makes that second derivative very powerful. So gotcha. Ahan, I'm I'm uh, curious. You know what what um, what's your, what what data, what kinds of data are you using in your models, in your modeling? What kind of data are you using to, or, or rather, are you using to inform your algorithms in terms of making sort of forward-looking calls uh, on what's happening right. in the market? How does that work? How do you so what data do you use, and and how do you teach the algorithm? Uh, how do you teach the AI or the, you know, how do you teach your, your process to find anomalies? Yeah. So a good deal of our 
process is proprietary. So, but I will stay at kind of like the high level conceptual how we how we go about it. The way we we think about you know forecasting conditions is that what we want to do is we want to create as high frequency a picture as possible of essentially how three things are evolving you know for various facets in the economy it's so it's the current in- income or the current impulse to a particular indicator right so we want to see whether conditions are accelerating or decelerating in the in the current environment because those because shocks in economic data potentiate shocks in future economic data or in other economic series right the second component we really want to measure is we want to measure expectations and whether those expectations are moving and so those expectations can be obtained from various types of survey data and you know other expectation related data and then finally what we want to do is we want to understand whether you know the the there are any cost of capital shocks right occurring and the combination of these things is where we try to triangulate how future conditions are going to evolve now this framework is more applicable to certain segments of the economy and less applicable to other segments of the economy so you know more income driven segments are less supported by this sort of framework and more probably rate sensitive sectors are probably more supported with this sort of framework and so what we're trying to do is we're trying to constantly get as incremental data comes in we want to keep updating what our estimates are of these current conditions that potentiate future conditions and that's kind of how we go about our forecasting process okay and and so what what is your what's your model telling you right now like if you can is it possible for you to show sort of an end product like an output from your process that that you use today to uh inform, sure. inform um, the uh you know the portfolio construction process sure so i mean i don't have a visual on hand right now but you know we maybe we can link uh the month in mac our latest month in macro report which is basically a really extensive report which covers all of the dynamics and our forecasts and stuff like that for many things. And yeah, so, I mean, I, you know, Ahan, I'm just I, I you know, I, I'm curious to know, you know, you know, on one side of this is all the math that you're doing and right. all the processing that you're doing of all this data. Mm-hmm. And and then, you know, on the other side is the end product and that's that's the, you know, that's the uh what is that? The golden goose, that's the magic, right? That's what you want to right. uh bottle up and 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 sell. And yeah. um, so go ahead. Oh, sure. So, um, you know, in, in terms of current context, where we think we're headed, right, is we, we think we're headed towards a situation where we're likely going to go into a growth contraction, right? So we're tracking GDP right now as of, I think, last week of about 1%, right? And, uh, you know, you can give or take about 20 basis points around that forecast. And so... And we're tracking economy-wide, so that's a little bit broader than just personal consumption kind of inflation. We're tracking economy-wide private sector inflation at around 6%. And so where we think we're headed over, let's say, the next six months is a situation where the growth number is going to be contractionary, right? So we're, we're looking at something where between negative 1% and negative 2% over the next six months. And an inflation picture where we'll settle at an economy-wide kind of inflation print of about 5%, Right. And the real impetus that's driving that is as follows. So we, we engaged on a monetary tightening. And what we've seen so far has been a little bit of an organic pullback in cyclical activity, 
right? So durable goods, housing, autos, these things have kind of had a partly idiosyncratic and partly, you know, cyclical pullback, right? Because you had an overconsumption of these items during an, ex an, an expansionary phase. And as we kind of pull back on that, you've seen some slowing and mean reversion to trend. And that's, you know, that slowing is part of the slowdown we're seeing. And at the same time, we've seen the net worth impacts of monetary policy tightening, but we are actually not yet at the point where debt service burdens have actually filtered through the economy to be meaningfully impactful on activity just yet. And so as we move forward in this tightening cycle, we're likely to see more sensitive areas feel more stress from this tightening in their debt service relative to income, right? And that is what is going to push us towards kind of a contractionary condition. This comes alongside, you know, an extremely tight labor market. And potentially, um, this is something that we don't necessarily have too much visibility on and we're working on developing, but we don't necessarily have too much visibility on the secular inflation picture, right? And so we're likely looking at a situation where we probably enter a, a, a recessionary condition which looks and feels slightly stagflationary. And at that point, we'll have to see, you know, how policymakers make choices and where we'll end up from there. Interesting. So what part of the economy is likely to be most sensitive and to react most promptly to an increase in debt service burdens. I mean, one of the things that uh, housing gets a lot of attention, but I mean, the reality is the vast majority of homeowners with a mortgage locked in at much lower rates. So if anything, we may see a stagnation in labor mobility, but it's unlikely to have a meaningful impact, I would think anyways, on debt service from mortgages. So Maybe is it cars that are turning over? What other areas of the economy are, are likely to flash warning signals as being affected by that most most quickly? Right. So I, I think that um I think the housing thing is actually uh is is probably a very good thing to discuss. And so when we when we look at housing today, what we're seeing is, you know, we're seeing aggregate housing activity actually contracting, right? And we are seeing construction begin to slow quite meaningfully. But the, what is incongruent with the housing activity picture is the employment condition in housing. And so if we look at, you know, um, <clears throat> there's, an intrinsic, there's an intrinsic link across the economy between total, you know, output and activity and employment. Because the purpose of employment is to generate activity. And so, you know, if you have periods of time where business sales and output are actually contracting, they eventually always result. Since 1966, we've had probably nine instances. Every single one has led to some form of employment contraction. And so if you actually go down to a sector-by-sector -sector basis, that, that, that rule basically holds up roughly well. And so what we're seeing in housing is a situation where activity has begun to contract, but it's not uniformly distributed. So the areas where we've begun to see activity contract is construction, right? But construction of single family homes, not multifamily homes. And so <clears throat> what you're saying is indeed correct in that a lot of people have secured financing in the past to purchase new homes. But then there's also the fact that construction needs to happen with ongoing financing. And so the, the bleed we're likely to see over time is that as new projects seek financing, they're going to be doing so 
amidst lower and weaker incomes and run up against the hurdle of higher financing, especially these larger projects, which probably need to turn over their financing at a slower rate than the single family homes, which we've seen so far. And so the pressure that we have on the economy today, the most significant one is in the form of housing employment and particularly construction employment being very elevated relative to the activity that we're seeing in that sector. And so if we play out where we're likely to go, it's unlikely that construction activity can remain as buoyant as it's been, even though it's not been particularly great. And that was likely to catalyze some form of weakness in, the con in construction activity and in construction employment. And so what's really important to, to recognize about construction employment, which is a broader, which is part of a broader set of employment, which is like cyclical employment, right? Is that during economic downturns, cyclical industries account for almost 100% of the variation in employment. So, you know, people are looking to tech jobs and professional business service jobs and IT consulting jobs and all these jobs to look for weakness. But if we go back almost every recession in recorded history, it's these leverage-sensitive, cyclically-sensitive areas that catalyze weakness. Now, I think that what is really important here is to realize that it's not even an outright contraction in these sectors that's required to generate a contraction in GDP. It's a slowing of employment in these sectors because the current setup that we have for economic growth is one where GDP is predominantly being driven by a strong consumer, which is being driven by an excessively strong labor market. And to the extent where if we do an attribution of real income, so real incomes can come from either real wages, they can come from the number of hours worked, or they can come from the amount of employment that you have. When we actually look through the attribution, you see that labor, the growth of labor and employment, actually accounts for more than 100% of income, which means that the other parts are actually contracting. And so what you need actually to push aggregate income and aggregate consumption into a contraction is just a softening of the labor market which would be entirely consistent with history and also consistent with the cyclical dynamics that we're seeing today. Yeah. Well, I mean, we can't really go, get much tighter in terms of the labor market, right? So exactly. So any weakness at the margin, are you suggesting that any weakness at the margin, if we move from, I mean, what's the unemployment rate at the moment? 3.5%, which is, I think, a 51-year low or something close. Um, so, you know, 3.6 or 3.7% would obviously be a softening in the labor market, but we would still be at 30 or 40 year lows in terms of unemployment, right? So I think what you're, what you're suggesting is that we can, we can still have a contraction, like a, like a recessionary contraction, um, even though unemployment is still extremely low relative to history. Yeah, absolutely. And so I think this is... Um this is a good point that you bring up. So we actually, what we did was um, we extrapolated, you know, just to get a sense of like how much more of this can we do, right? We, we extrapolated out the most recent three-month trend in unemployment, which includes two very soft prints and one extremely strong one, right? And so let's say reality lies somewhere in the middle in terms of where the unemployment, where employment growth trend kind of lies for that. And we extrapolated those out and we, we you know, we, we just projected that over a couple of years. 
And on that basis, we will reach an unemployment rate of sub 2% by the end of this year, which, um, you know, would be probably one of the most unlikely things ever. You know, never say never, but uh, all arguments point to 2% being some natural rate of unemployment and, and such. And so it seems very unlikely. And then when we go back and we essentially look at analogous periods in history, right, which um, where we have very tight labor markets like we have today, right, and economic activity kind of slowing, what we've seen is that employment doesn't accelerate, like the rate of gains of employment don't accelerate as we get into a tighter labor market. They, in fact, slow, right, mm -hmm. because it's harder and harder to find, you know, applicable work and things like that. Yep. And so the if we actually modify those numbers to be something closer to what is consistent with history, right, and and project out a reasonable rate of labor force labor force growth, we actually end up at a higher unemployment rate, right? So something closer to you know three, four, four-ish percent. And so I think that the and the impact of those changes is a contractionary impact on consumption spending, which is the largest component of GDP and GDP growth in today's setting, which you know reinforces kind of a downturn. And so. Um, what is really important about the beginnings of unemployment or the you know the the, the initial layoff phase is that mm -hmm. what it really does is it removes economic entities from economic activity right so you know a worker is somebody who receives income and who also you know spends on consumption which you know fuels which fuels business income which allows them to invest and so when you have this firing take place what you do is you essentially you know just extract a chunk of gdp and when you reach that point, which we're more and more likely to do based off the trajectory that we're on, you, you keep potentiating the likelihood that GDP will eventually see this you know, sudden kind of melt up. And so what is really important about that is that unemployment spikes are very spor sporadic. It's almost like the VIX, right? So uh, if you actually look at the changes during recessionary periods and unemployment, the magnitude of changes is maybe three to five times the size of a typical move during uh, an expansionary period. And that's this, you know, this, this economic flywheel kind of thing happening, right, where you, it's a self-reinforcing spiral downwards. And so, yeah, I, I, I definitely agree with the idea that there's not that much more the labor market can do for us. Okay, so we've started to see, if anything, a re-acceleration in several important sectors and in, in general consumption and in several inflation metrics. How does that play off against your general kind of weakening thesis? So um, I think I think it was actually a very interesting month in that sense, right? So we, we came into, uh, uh, when I say month, I mean January's data, right? So mm -hmm. it's mostly January's data that everyone's looking at. And so we came into the year with everyone... The January data that was, that was reported in February. In February, yes. yeah, exactly. Yeah. So that's all the most recent data you're seeing everywhere for retail sales and inflation and all that stuff. Yep. And so um, I think what's really interesting about it is, you know, we came into the year with uh, these, broad, these broad measures. You know, retail sales was down in December, it was down in November, consumption was down in November, down in December, and all of these things. And I think that what's important is to really, like, track back what drove this impulse and this change, right? And so the biggest change that we saw in January 
was a dramatic, dramatic rise in employment, right? Now, what this dramatic rise in employment did was, so first off, this dramatic rise in employment was concentrated to one sector, professional and business services sector, which is basically, you know, high-skilled, you know, you think about, you know, um, accountants, lawyers, tech workers, things like that. So this one sector accounted for, I would say, more than 60% of the gains in employment for that one month. And at the same time, that sector also saw the largest increase in hours worked. So there was a spike in the number of hours worked, and there was also a spike in employment. You could argue probably, I mean, this is like a little bit hand-wavy, but you could probably argue that there's some relationship between starting a new job and working a few more hours. But, you know, maybe, maybe not. <laughs> so um, well, I, I think that... that there, there, there was the, uh, the story today that, that uh, Elon Musk fired the, um, the woman who was working, who's, who's actually responsible for making the move from, you know, free to paid. Okay. You know, the, the verified accounts. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. apparently she, she, was, she was spending nights at the office. She was sleeping in her office. Oh, wow. In order to show Elon, you know how dedicated, <laughs> you know she is, and he fired her anyway. Wow! Okay. Along well, with along with more people, along with more Twitter people, but uh, well, you know, so well, maybe so, after listening to this, February data is going to be a little <laughs> bit different, huh? <laughs> yeah. You know, speaking um, speaking of uh, you know people putting in more hours in their jobs. Um, yeah, I, I, that's what it made me think of that today. But go ahead. <laughs> And so, and so in any case, so the, the massive impulse that you saw, so to nominal income, right, so, so to, to personal income, came from this dramatic rise in employment and hours worked in this one sector, right? And what that did was it flowed through to nominal spending in other sectors. So we immediately, so once this employment rose, everyone, there were larger incomes, right, due to employment. As a result, you didn't actually have a very large increase in, in wages, right? So, in fact, real wages remain in contraction, right? And so that flowed through to an increase in spending, right, which supported things like retail sales, which ends up in the consumption data. And this, all of this, right, happens alongside, and this is, I think, a big part of the conversation that we probably need to have, happens alongside an amelioration in liquidity conditions, right? And so... You have economic data which improves on the margin because of this pulse from employment, which leads to a pulse in nominal spending, which supports inflation, right? Because it's just nom it's output versus the amount of nominal spending. And I think it's also important to realize that this massive pulse in employment didn't lead to some crazy inflation number. It was a it was a consensus expected inflation number. You know, it was 50 basis points, modestly pretty pretty strong relative to recent history, but not that strong in the current context. And so. Um, you know, what, what, this, what these two things did was survey data is typically just is pretty coincident with asset price data. And so you see this increase in employment and activity numbers coming from, from you know, just increased employment. And alongside that, you have an amelioration in liquidity conditions, which helps prop up asset markets. The combination of these things, it creates a picture where, oh, wow, conditions look really good. But the question is, how much of that do you think can keep happening as you go forward. So as we've talked about, it's highly unlikely that this pulse from employment can keep continuing. In fact, if we if we do this, the, the most recent month-on-month -month print in employment, and we extrapolate that, uh, we'd be at 1.5% unemployment by mid-year. So it's pretty unlikely that's going to happen. 
When it comes to liquidity, I think that's a bigger question that I think we probably need to start with some conceptual grounding before we get into exactly what happened with the liquidity picture. But I think that that's kind of the way we've interpreted recent events from our tracking of conditions. So, so January was an anomaly. Is that? I, I would say it's just another anomaly? stage. Yeah. So, you know, I think we, I think it's just another step. And so, you know, you need to see much more sequential data evolve like this to have a meaningful, like, oh, this is a completely different world. Um, and so what we think is probably it was most of it just employment. And when we play out employment, we don't think it's likely to continue the way it's continu it's going so far. Yeah. But they, so these are these are elements. These are these are waves. These are yeah. these are things that are coming in waves. And but the waves that are coming behind, sometimes they're bigger, sometimes they're smaller. But overall, they're declining in your yeah. in your model. OK. Yeah. So just to be clear, you know, labor doesn't need to, or the unemployment rate doesn't need to decline. We could just stay here, right? And for example, mm -hmm. we could see a pickup in hours worked. We could see a pickup in wages. Mm -hmm. um, but if we, if if hours worked and wages stay relatively constant, and the unemployment rate stays, you know, s stays around the the current rate, what would that do to your? Um, economic growth contraction models, right? Like, I mean, I hear you that we're unlikely to continue <clears throat> to, to extrapolate the, the current employment trends and get to a 2% unemployment rate by, by January or February 2024. Um, if we just kind of bounce along the, this trough here for a little while, how does that play into your models? And what are some of the other variables that might play off this and, and, and offer some surprises either to the upside or the downside. That's a, this is, a, a, sorry, Ahan, before, before you go, I, I uh, just wanted to bring up, there was, there was a pretty interesting McKinsey paper recently about productivity increases, you know, possibly being a, a potential solution to inflation and, and debt. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you saw that, but that was maybe a week ago. A week or a week uh, and I a half haven't ago. no. Uh, just go, just Adam just reminded me of it, but it's it was uh, an interesting paper that McKinsey points out that that a productivity increase from I think the current mid one percent, uh, you know, rate uh, to somewhere around two point two percent productivity increase across the board would add ten trillion dollars to the economy. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And uh, so anyway, I, I think that goes that might be. A variable that Adam is maybe asking about, like how does productivity gains, like more hours worked or more productivity sure. overall, change your model? Sure, and and so I think that productivity is likely to be a much more slower moving variable in this broader context. Like the way we look at productivity is over much longer time frames than you know what we focus on in this in in this kind of context is much more what's happening with more real-time measures of just activity as opposed to what is the underlying productivity trend. And so, so that, that, that's the productivity aspect of it. I think, uh, Adam, to, to address your, your what if unemployment rates stay stable, mm -hmm. right? I think that what we have to think about is the fact that unemployment rates are a function of the rate of change of employment and the labor force, right? And so currently, right, we are in a state where um, I would say that employment is about 50 to maybe even, you know, 75 basis points faster than labor force growth. And so for us 
to actually have a flatlining of unemployment rates, we'd still need to see labor. Uh, we need still need to see employment growth decelerate, which is still a step function lower. So unless you, for some reason, expect labor force labor force growth to accelerate by 50 and 75 basis points, which is pretty unprecedented. The, you know, even with, you know, say a comeback to work type situation, which is somewhat happening, right? We've actually seen that, you know, there's a pretty tight band around which labor force growth actually operates. And so the, the likely balance is if you want unemployment rates to stay flat, it has to still mean employment growth has to, has to slow. And so what that does, if employment rate growth still slows, you still have this combination of, you know, slightly slower employment growth, contracting wages, and maybe like flattish hours, which net is still worse, right? This is such a tricky environment. There's so many <laughs> reflexive variables, you know, sure. one, and there's also variables that we haven't really seen since the last pandemic. For example, you know, one of the things that, that has been sort of widely observed is excess retirements, right? We had a much larger number of 55 to 65 year olds leave the labor force from 2020 through 2022 than would have been expected through the trend. If, if we just sort of extrapolated the mm -hmm. very steady trend that we'd seen over the last 30 years. And um, over the last little while, we've been able to, there's some, there was some ambiguity about what the primary drivers of that excess retirements uh, were, right? They, there was some speculation. It was maybe long COVID, et cetera. I think we're triangulating on the fact that it actually the largest explanatory factor was, you know, windfalls and wealth, especially in housing, right? Just people, people were a lot wealthier a lot sooner in their career than they expected to be because of windfalls in housing and other asset, asset classes, um, their general sort of investment portfolios. And so they felt that they could retire and maybe, you know, there was a catalyst. They'd already been off from work, et cetera, right? So there's a lot of intermingling variables. Um, as asset prices deflate, and we're even beginning to see some of that deflation in home prices, right? Mm -hmm. Do we expect to see some of those excess retirements revert, right? And so, you know, it would be unusual to see an acceleration of, of in the labor force of 50 to 75 basis points, looking back through the long-term history, but in the context of the current environment, which has already had these weird dislocations, maybe that's possible, right? And then, and so I'll, I'll stop there. Mm -hmm. I do want to come back to excess savings, which is another really sure. unique variable um, that I think is meaningful in this, in this, uh, in this cycle. But let's talk maybe about retirees returning to work. Right. And so I think that um, what you're highlighting is true, right? Like that, that there's definitely been some amount of pressure. And, and so what I will say is that, you know, um, you did have, you did see some of the impact in this, you know, in this retirement in terms of the dwindling of the labor force, right? But even, even that, right, I don't have the numbers in front of me, hasn't been such a and and so I think that even if we were to reverse that um, that deceleration in labor force right over time, it would not be such a meaningful reacceleration in in labor force growth that it would overpower the dynamic the the speed at which um, employment growth is currently moving. 
And so I think that, yes, you're probably right. And the, the answer is never black and white, right? There's probably some, some truth in between what you're saying in terms of, you know, um, labor force participation increasing and what I'm saying in terms of labor force participation is probably flat and it's, the, it's employment that's the one that moves. And so when we net those two out, it's still a situation where at best we can Im- imagine a flat labor force, right? And so an unemployment rate that's flat. And so I think that the combination of which one moves it is very meaningful, right? And so now if we take the current rate of growth of employment, which is going to be very hard to sustain, but even if we if we sustain it, the question is, you know, are wages and and hours going to, you know, maintain their current pace, right? And so I think that that le- brings us to the profits question, right? And so what we're seeing so far from publicly reported companies, right, is that companies are are beginning to feel a little bit of a bite in terms of their profitability. The main drag on profitability um, is largely coming from companies' own reinvestment. So, you know, if we if we look at all the sources of profits, right, you can have it coming from, you know, profits are essentially a, 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 a function of the relative savings of non-business parties in, in the economy. And so when we actually look at that attribution, what we're seeing is that the, the financers of profits are households today, right? And the biggest drag are actually businesses themselves, right? And so what we're seeing now is a situation where profits have begun to contract a little bit, and it's unlikely that given these monetary policy cycle dynamics that we're talking about, that we're going to see a massive rise in, in, in gross investment in the economy. And so as a result, the squeeze on profits is on and is likely to worsen, which means that there's a, there's a higher likelihood that the things that businesses do control, the first two things that they try to control before they actually try to control the amount of labor is hours and wages. And they're going to try to claw back as much profitability as they possibly can. And, you know, if the profit condition ends up being, you know, exceedingly bad, that's when they really revert to the, the, the firing of employees. And so, you know, when I, when I square away all these things, it, it looks to me very likely that the, that the income story is likely to deteriorate, which means the consumption story will deteriorate, which means the GDP picture will deteriorate. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think the, there's a general consensus that the Fed is going to have to catalyze a recession, even if it's just shallow, in order to rein in inflation expectations. The big question is how high are they going to have to raise rates and for how long, how long are we going to have to wait for the excesses in the market that are probably exogenous to normal cyclical activity, right? You know, we talked about the excess retirements. We talked about excess savings, um, you know, from, from massive fiscal expansion in, in 2020, 2021, still playing through how long these exogenous factors, which let's face it, it's impossible to factor into macroeconomic models because there's no historical precedent, right? Unless you go back to sort of 1919, um, how long it takes for these factors to play through. Then there's also this variable of um, whether raising rates, you know, you've got the, the MMT people who pretty consistently say that raising rates means that you're paying a lot more interest into the economy, right? And that that excess interest flows through as income, right? Which 
which will impact consumption. Now, you typically, know, I, I don't want to interrupt you, are, but but um, if you actually track the interest, the the impact is not that meaningful. Um, so so it's not, it's not you know, showing part, up yet. I mean, in the sense that the, the, the size of interest transfer that actually happens from uh, these, the, these payments is not meaningful to cause the kind of inflation that people think. So if you actually look at personal interest payments, you know, that are received by households from all entities, including the Treasury, they are less than a percent of income. So conceptually very strong, but uh, when you actually bear it out in the data, it's like, uh, probably not. I hear you, but we're, all of the effects that we're talking about are at the margin, right? And sure. all of them, each of them in its, on its own is a small effect, right? If all, if, if, if all of that income were to go away, right? It's 1% now, was 0% a year and a half ago, right? <laughs> because, the, because rates were zero, right? So, you know, it's, that's, a, that's a very large um, bump in excess income at the margin, right? So, right. you know, I'm just saying that there are, there are a lot of sort of competing dynamics here. The question really is if, well, there's lots of questions, but I always sort of think to try to distill it, um, is there more strength in the economy than most people think? If so, is the Fed gonna have to raise rates higher than everybody thinks and for longer? If so, are they also going to need to or have permission or the ability to drain liquidity from the system at the pace that they have have already declared that they're going to that they're going to drain it for like the next three years? Um, if all those things come to fruition, um, it doesn't like this is the weird competing dynamic right now. A strong economy, everyone thinks, oh, great, that's fantastic for earnings. And that actually might be notwithstanding margin pressures and all that kind of stuff. But if it requires to, the Fed to raise rates much further than everybody thinks and to drain liquidity, collaborate with the Treasury to drain liquidity at a much ra a faster rate than anybody thinks and or affects credit creation, then that could be highly deleterious to stocks, even in the face of an unexpectedly strong economy, right? Yeah. And so, you know, uh, to, to, to talk a little bit about kind of the you know, the, the, the earlier part of, uh, of, of the conversation where, where you, we touched upon the lags and, you know, the, the impact of liquidity injection. So I, I think that uh, what has really happened over the course of many cycles in the economy is that, you know, we've had a recomposition of the economy slowly and gradually right, towards a services-oriented economy. And what that's done is make... So if you think about the time when, you know, manufacturing and industrial output and things like that were a large part of the economy, leverage and the ability to leverage was also exceptionally large, right? So our ability to add debt to facilitate output and, you know, to also facilitate consumption in some cases was very large. And so the, the cyclicality that most people refer to is basically a sensitivity to interest rates, which is usually a change that is brought about by the Fed. And so what you've had over time is you've had a recomposition of the economy to more of an income economy than a debt economy, Boom. even though we have high levels of debt, which, you know, seems kind of counterintuitive relative to all the narratives that you hear. And so today what we have, particularly after the type of stimulus that was done in the COVID recession, which was a pure income injection, right? It wasn't and it wasn't 
a credit injection where the Fed, you know, decreased interest rates, which allowed for a lot of lending and borrowing. It was a pure income injection, right? And that pure income injection lends itself further to this recomposition, right? And so the, the problem that a lot of more traditional models are dealing with now is that a lot of early indications are developed based on these cyclical indicators of, you know, how do they react to monetary policy? So durable goods react to economic monetary. indicators, et cetera. Exactly. Yeah. So durable yeah. goods reacts to, you know, interest rates, which means that, you know, eventually it's going to somehow impact aggregate activity. But over time, durable goods just becomes a smaller and smaller part of economic activity. So the severity at which durable goods needs to contract now is so much larger, which means the Fed needs to do so much more. And so I think that when we started 2022, we were actually on the path to doing this absolutely right, right? In the sense that you actually had fiscal contraction and monetary contraction happening at the same time. And so this, the, the, the problem we have today is a money and income problem. It's not a credit and debt problem, right? And so to be able to reverse those conditions, now the Fed has to essentially go at itself alone because we did have a little bit of, you know, fiscal surpluses and things like that, but that wasn't entirely on purpose, right? Um, so as a result, what you have to do now is you have to impact these cyclical sectors so adversely and so much that the Fed will probably have to go further. And it's because this, you know, you can think of it as a relative beta of the economy to cyclicals has just reduced over time because of the relative weighting. Right. And that, that's kind of how I would think about, you know, navigating the cycle and the relative strength. Because if you look at what's happening to a lot of, you know, a lot of economic forecasters, mm -hmm. The, the traditional cyclical signals have all triggered, right? ISM is down, manufacturing is down, um, durable goods, housing, you know, interest rates are up. But it's the relative sensitivity of those things and size of those things that's probably going to prolong this cycle, right? Yeah, so very, very interesting, Han. I, I think I, think I, I, I want to ask you, you know, so, you know, you, you, have, you have all this... Um, algorithmic work happening to identify these economic trends. And, and then, you know, at the end of it is the end product, which informs your investment decisions. How do you make money? How do we, you know, as investors, what's your model telling you to do from an investment standpoint with all this information? Sure. So, so maybe I can uh, give some context in terms of how we think about kind of the investment framework, right? So um, obviously we do a lot of uh, economic forecasting on three major variables that we believe define economic cycles. So we believe that the combination of growth, inflation, and liquidity are what define economic cycles, and it's permutations of those things that determine where you are in the cycle and where you're likely to go. And so, you know, we spend a lot of time trying to forecast how these cycles are going to develop, right? And that kind of sets up our fundamental picture. And from there, when we, you know, we start transitioning into how we're going to weaponize this and look at markets, right? What we think is very pertinent for any investor to realize is that irrespective of how good your models are, how high frequency, how much data you have, as a fundamental forecaster, you're likely to be very wrong very often, right? So you can have a 40, you know, if you're the best of the best in the world, you'll, have, you'll be wrong 40% of the time. Fifth, you know, if you're, if you're having a bad year, it's going to be 50, 60% of the time. But, yeah. you know, uh, so if you're pretty elite, you'll be 55% of the time, you'll be right. And so actually living through being wrong 45% of the time, especially if, you know, those are in a sequence, is remarkably painful. And so what we try to do to ameliorate that 
is we, we, we do what we call market regime confirmation. And so what we, what we try to do is we try to understand what markets are pricing in terms of regimes for growth, inflation, and liquidity. So we look at, you know, what are markets implying, and we try to understand where markets are beginning to price the conditions that we expect to evolve on a fundamental level. And what that's really allowing us to do is just to be a little bit more pro-cyclical in our allocation rather than just being outright counter-cyclical, which just helps with the smoothness of returns, right? And then on top of that, you know, we use a variety of timing factors, which are, you know, consistent with more traditional, you know, mean reversion, trend, reversal, breakouts, things like that, to help us essentially create return streams that are stable, but also, I think, importantly, um, that are impervious to, you know, any particular regime or autocorrelation structure. So, you know, is vol up? Can you do well? Is vol down? Can you do well? Are returns autocorrelated or are they inversely correlated? Can you do well in all of those? And those are kind of our, our timing tools. So we look at, you know, a universe of 37 ETFs and we pass each one of the ETFs through this universe. And then we, you know, enter kind of a port portfolio construction where we try to cap our maximum volatility in order to cap our max drawdown. And so that process today, right, I think it, it, it tells you a couple of things. So uh, I think it's important to, 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 you know, keep in mind that our positions turn over weekly. So, you know, we have a relatively high frequency. So, you know, we could be in or out of positions depending on how conditions evolve. So, right. um, but what I think the, just the general takeaway is this, that we think that economic conditions are going, likely to evolve poorly. But from what we're seeing from markets is that there's a lot of cross-currents and mixed messaging, right? Yeah. And as a result, what we're also having is a large amount of volatility, which is a function of this tightening liquidity that environment that we're in. And so what happens during these tightening liquidity environments is that, you know, asset correlations tend to become closer and tighter. And as a result, you know, a lot of diversification benefits in your portfolio tend to evaporate when tightening liquidity is like the main factor driving asset price performance. Right. And so during this time, what you actually need is you need a lower total gross exposure to achieve your volatility objective than you would otherwise. So, you know, if you needed, you know, 100% equity exposure to achieve a 15%, you know, equity vol mandate, now probably you need something like, you know, 50 75%. And so we're seeing that across the portfolio. And so I think the, the, the most salient thing that we've seen over, let's say, the last four months is, you know, maintaining just a very high level of cash, which, you know, today more and more is actually allowing you to even recapture inflation. So it's kind of a paid to wait thing, right? Mm -hmm. And at the same time, I think that, you know, the, the tightening liquidity components are, are, are favoring things that are way more relative value than absolute beta. So, you know, Things like, you know, maybe perhaps FX, like the dollar, or, you know, things like, you know, being long, long bond, short stocks, or some combination of those things. And so it's, it's a time of uncertainty, and it's a time of really just max, managing your vol and risk. And um, that's really what we're seeing. In terms of actual positioning, right now, you know, heading into this week, we've just been long the dollar and long, you know, long T-bills. Um, more generally, starting this year as a more tactical kind of play, we were... Long sixty forty, betting on a little bit of disinflation and inflation vol coming down. Right. I think more more broadly, I think the way we think, I think I, you know, from a more discretionary perspective, I think the most interesting trade to me personally is um, 
initially being the short the two year on a little bit of repricing of like, you know, overly zealous, we're going to get to cuts. And then eventually, as we get to economic deterioration from employment data actually being long bonds, right? Like, I think right. I like those sets of things, but I don't know whether those things will actually enter the portfolio. So, yeah, the yep. the, ten, the ten years definitely uh, shaping up for, for yeah, an opportunity. Sure. <laughs> yeah. On um, we're we're winding down, but before we do, yeah. I just wanted you to have a chance to talk about it. You're describing, I think, your ETF. Um, portfolio model right yeah um and it just occurred to me i was reviewing the methodology uh, which is a great methodology document by the way recommend it um and just in the context of the conversation um i was curious you're using economic indicators um your own proprietary recipe of um, macro indicators to divine the uh, growth inflation liquidity um, dynamic at any given point in time. And I guess because you sort of have simulated this process back through sort of the 1970s, um, just based on your statements about compositional changes in the economy over time, just wondering how, because we, we've done some thinking and some probing on the macro indicators ourselves as well. And we've been sort of asking the same questions as the composition of the economy changes through time. Um, how do you think about employing these macroeconomic indicators um, and deriving signals from them as their relative importance changes based on these compositional changes? Right. And um, I think uh, you're getting the, to the heart of really like the challenge of any macroeconomic forecaster, especially if you are systematic, you know? Um, I think what what your what you want to do really is in an ideal state of the world most people would have developed this understanding of this relative beta you know so to speak so if you're you know using durable goods as your leading indicator you know I'm just using this random example again and again but um yeah so it, I think that what you want to do is uh something that to steal your own uh language uh I think that you need an ensemble of reliable things that are adequately diverse. And mm -hmm. so even when you're trying to triangulate economic conditions, what you have to realize is that one set of indicators, if they are all the same and they all tell the same story, they are unlikely to be meaningfully additive to a process. And so what we try to do by looking at, you know, some, I think the, the, the main ingredient that we try to focus on nowadays much more is this liquidity picture, right? And there are, there are many dimensions to liquidity. And what that allows us to do is allows us to have a very broad kind of leading indicator approach, which is also adequately different from the growth indicator kind of approach, right? And what we want to try to do is really say how many different ways can we look at the economy with a little bit of edge, as opposed to credit cycle is the only way to forecast the economy. It's worked for 80 years and we're going to keep doing that. Because that approach, because of these comp compositional and structural changes, it's going to run out at some point. And, you know, you look at, I think there was a time where nobody knew probably what a leading indicator is. And now they are, you know, all over Bloomberg. Everyone has the charts. And so I think there's definitely, um, now there's, I think there's a separate conversation in terms of how many people can actually exploit that information, which I think is a valuable conversation mm -hmm. as well, right? 
Um, but I think what you want to do as a forecaster is try to say, how many different small edges can I can I put together that are adequately different but paint the sto- story of future economic activity? And so it's, you know, that's what I would really kind of counsel. It seems to me, too, that if, and I like your use of the word beta there, I think that that <clears throat> invokes some potential modeling directions because I you imagine... That, huh? <laughs> yeah. And, 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 um, I can imagine that you, because these compositional changes occur relatively slowly through time, that you can, you can recalibrate your, um, indicator weights over time based on some sort of long-term moving average of their, um, beta to the underlying things that you're forecasting, um, as they change. So that's, that's a neat, um, concept and uh had another point but i forget what i was uh well i'll I'll just go off that to be honest i I really i really liked the way that you described the give and take between businesses and households and and then ultimately the clawback that businesses are employing in terms of cutting employment and then you know that vicious cycle i like the way you described that that was i appreciate that yeah, I, I think I think you know investors too often play you know a regular game of chess or checkers when they're investing, and and they're not really they're not really playing you know the 3D chess that they should be playing or ought to be playing, and and that goes to your comment about you know uh, and my question, which was you know now that you know all of this, how do you make money with it? And putting the two you know putting the two ideas together, macroeconomics and markets. Um, often people think that the two go hand in hand, but they don't. They, they they don't necessarily inform one another. And so, you know, if you can do that through your modeling, and and my I, one question I had in that in that vein was, you know, when you get when you get the economics output from your modeling, your economic modeling, do you intervene and then um, make decisions based on the output about what the investment portfolio should be, or does that happen Never. dynamically? Never. It's so completely we, dynamically. Yeah, yeah. From so one end we to the other. we never touch we never touch anything. And uh, really, what that boils down to is um, you know having discipline because um, macro is something that lends itself to you know or, or attracts people that you know are intellectually curious and they have a lot of ideas about the world. And you know, I think I'm not short of those. But mm-hmm. uh, I think they also it also attracts a crowd that, you know, there, there is an inherent, uh, I would say, almost arrogance to macro forecasting because it's so hard, right? And so we, we're going to have this tendency always to want to overfit and have very, very strong recency bias and things like that. And so what we're really trying to do is say, hey, like, until we know for sure, we're not going to touch anything. And if we know for sure, we have to be able to systematize it. Otherwise, we don't right. really know, right? So if I think that, oh, yeah, this data is going to come out because I know X, Y, and Z, unless I truly know and I can really systematize that, there's, there's no value in it because it doesn't have any positive expected value. And so we really stay far away from the, oh, the model's telling me this, but I know better and you know, right. let me front run the model. Because more often than not, um, sometimes you might get it right, but you don't know how many times you're going to get it wrong and that just yeah. leads to a lot of problems. Yeah. You want to yeah, that, no, that or you know, singing from our songbook from from a systematic thinking standpoint. Yeah, <laughs> um, I knew I remembered what I wanted to to ask you about, 
liquidity. We had Andy Constant on, and and um, I'm a big fan of his framework. And um, one of the things that that he mentioned stood out to me, and that is that the liquidity is an enormous driver of asset prices in the current environment. But until the Fed expanded its balance sheet so dramatically over um, certainly the last 12, 12, 13 years, but definitely over the last two or three years, it really didn't play a very large role in asset pricing at all, right? So I'm just wondering, um, and, and, you know, and as they run down the size of their balance sheet, one would presumably expect that that um, their balance sheet will play a decreasing role over time, right? So, you know, while liquidity is obviously a major driver of asset prices right now and was last year and, and in 2021, as you look forward to 2024, 2025, 2026, if the Fed is able to achieve its balance sheet normalization objectives, you know, how do you anticipate liquidity acting as a, in terms of its weighting as a, a variable in, in um, macro models? Yeah, so um, very interesting subject. And uh, shout out to Andy. Um, I, uh, we have interacted quite a few times on Twitter. Like, you know, we've had him on the podcast. So definitely respect Andy's thinking on it. Um, I think he shares some of the thinking that we have on liquidity, but we have our own version kind of of how we think about liquidity. So if I can briefly talk about that a little bit. Yeah. Um, so... We think that actually uh, what you're talking about is, you know, the, the use of interest rates versus, um, you know, quantitative easing, right? And um, how we actually think of those two things as essentially the same thing, just deployed differently. And so when we think about liquidity, right, what we try to um, track is we try to understand this, the flow of cash and cash-like assets through the economy. And... What is you know a cash-like asset? A cash-like asset is essentially uh, an asset which is somebody's liability, which has minimal risk of nominal dollar loss, right? Um, so, in essence, every asset kind of operates somewhere on the liquidity spectrum. Some assets are just more liquid than others because they have less risk. And so, um, when you think about liquidity, there's a hierarchy to liquidity, and there are two main providers of liquidity that you can think of, right? There's the government sector and there's the private sector, right? And so the government sector, right, is the U.S. government, which is the sum of the Fed and Treasury, right? And their liabilities are private sector's assets. So what we do is we go through a process to net out their intergovernmental holdings to arrive at the joint balance sheet. And the, those liabilities are the stock of assets the private sector owns. And what's important to recognize about their, their liabilities is that for any given duration, those are the most high-quality assets, right? Because the government is the issuer of the currency. And as a result, the risk that they won't meet their liabilities is extremely low. And so that, so why does the government actually, actually you know, raise debt if they, can just, um, if they can just print money? One, it's inflationary. And two... What they're trying to do is they're trying to reallocate money from savers in the economy and create income in the economy with some sort of societal good in mind. Right? And what that does is it creates spending in the economy, which is a net positive. Right? And at the same time, it also hands a very pristine asset to the private sector. Right? So gross issuance of this federal balance sheet is a net positive. 
And it's in part impacted by interest rates, right? And also just the will of the Treasury. So the, so the Fed determines interest rates and the Treasury determines how, they, how much they're going to issue. And those two things are related to each other. Mm-hmm. Now, what happened, right, which was a little bit anomalous, is that the Fed used to control interest rates, right? And that would have an impact on the Treasury's issuance and that would have an impact on, you know, credit securities and the corporate sector. And we'll talk about private sector liquidity in a sec. And so when we look at what they did, they embarked on a journey of QE, which is essentially a journey of maturity, maturity transformation. And so what matters when it comes to this government balance sheet is first, is it expanding? Was it contracting? The more it's expanding, the more the impulse to income, which is a net positive for the economy, which is probably liquidity inducing. Next is the composition of this issuance. So mm-hmm. if the issuance is a short duration issuance, right? So the treasury issues bills, right? It's the equivalent to issuing cash, but plus mm-hmm. an interest rate. And so you have this redistributive effect. And also the immediacy of spending of short duration issuance is very, very fast. So, you know, you're not going to raise a three month bill to invest in a 30 year infrastructure project, right? So if you raise a bill, you're likely to spend it on, on, you know, on, on your payables pretty quickly. And so that impulse go, circulates through the economy very quickly. Now, what the Fed essentially did was when they purchased a lot of treasury notes and bonds, they recomposed this aggregate government balance sheet. Mm-hmm. And reserves are a highly, highly liquid asset available to the commercial banking system. And so what this, what this combination of fiscal and monetary policy does is you expand the balance sheet and you also lead to a situation where that aggregate balance sheet is less risky, creating more liquidity in the system. And so when I think about the policy aspects of liquidity, I don't think that the dynamic has actually changed. I think that, you know, we had the luxury and this is just the evolution of learning like anything else, right? Like in any other field, we weren't talking about liquidity 10 years, 20 years ago, but now we are. And so I think that What's important to realize is that interest rates were always managed through reserve balances anyway. And so, you know, the liquidity management has been integral to the system forever. It's just that we ran out of the control of interest rates and started to use only maturity transformation, right, to impact liquidity conditions. And so when I, when I, when I think about the future, right, we've potentiated some amount of interest rate movement, right, by increasing interest rates now. And we've arguably we still have the QE QT kind of channel, right? Because you can still do bill issuance. Um, and right. I think that when we're looking at this aggregate liquidity picture, looking at this combined picture probably has explanatory power over the entire sample. If you focus only on QE, you will be really good post post GFC. If you look at only interest rates, you'll probably be good, you know, pre GFC. And I think that looking forward, you probably want to have both, right? Yeah, all I guess all I'm saying is that the impact of, well, see, there's a lot to unpack there. But, <laughs> but, but in the, to, to, to distill the initial point, yeah. the, um, when, the, when the Fed balance sheet or even when the government balance sheet is large relative to the economy, <clears throat> then obviously changes in government issuance and maturity is going to have a much larger impact on the economy and on financial markets than when the size of the balance, the, the Fed balance sheet 
or the government balance sheet is small relative to the private sector, right? Until yep. 2011, 2012, the, um, the size of the Fed balance sheet was minuscule relative to the size of the private sector. Um, you know, now it's actually of a meaningful size. And with the massive amount of deficit spending by the Treasury over the last three years, the, the, the fiscal balance sheet is also very large relative to the size of the economy all of a sudden. So I guess all I'm saying is to go back to your sort of beta language, the beta of changes in both um, composition and tenor of the Treasury and the, and the Fed balance sheet should have a larger beta on the economy and on asset prices as a function of the size of those balance sheets. So as the balance sheets shrink, if they do, relative to the size of the private sector, then we should expect that the weight of those changes in liquidity to, on a percentage basis, to have a much smaller effect, right? Um, I think the other thing I kind of wanted to, to, to dig into, and I'm now really pressed for time, <laughs> but is the, um, is the fact that the Fed also was really trying to play with the wealth effect by changing the composition of the term structure, right? When they absorb duration, they flatten the yield curve and, you know, bond investors were able to eke out the required premium from the yield curve. When they flatten the curve, they can no longer get the premium that they require, the required return from, the, from, from investing in treasuries up the curve, which means now they've got to move into credit, right? Those then credit spreads tighten so the, at, the, at the margin, credit managers who are trying to earn their required return are no longer able to get their required return, which means they got to move into, you know, down the capital structure, eventually the equity, et cetera, right? And so this is pushing risk premia higher, or I guess compressing risk premia, yeah. pushing asset prices higher at the margin over time. So my expectation is, now, for the Fed, this is in collaboration with the Treasury, the Fed could let high long duration assets to roll off and the and the Treasury could could sterilize those with bills, right? And it would have mm -hmm. no impact on the 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 yield curve or actually serve to steepen it, which would attract assets. But anyway, there's there's a there's a there's a whole term structure phenomenon or dynamic at play here too that has a very powerful impact on asset prices even if it has a more muted impact on the, the economy, right? I mean, definitionally, we know that when the Fed, when, when the Treasury expands its balance sheet, it's adding deposits to the private sector. We know that that's accounting identity, right? But where the, the Treasury issues has also has a profound effect on asset prices and those dynamics compete at times. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, so I, I, I think that, you know, so high level, definitely agree. And then, so the nuance that I was um, trying to get at is, what you're saying is true that the that the balance sheet bloating really happened um, in this post GFC era, right? And what I think oh, yeah. is really important is to recognize that that's a function of running out of interest rates. So once you flatline that interest rate, the only option you have is issuance, right? Issuance and composition of that issuance. And so the, the Treasury did whatever they tried they could do, and the Fed manipulated the comp composition of that issuance. But in past cycles, right, the 
the liquidity impact came from the private sector because the Fed would reduce interest rates and that would stimulate liquidity creation from the private sector, which was a way more pro-cyclical phenomenon, right? And so interest rates would act counter-cyclically, but, you know, and as a result, you know, um, private sector issuance would act pro-cyclically and such, and that's how this cycle would evolve. And so I think that if you track the, the combined aggregate of both policy liquidity and um, private sector liquidity using these two dimensions of, you know, both issuance and interest rates, right? You see a consistency of picture over time, right? And that's really what, you know, going back to kind of that relative beta discussion that we had, indeed, you're right that the the treasury took over kind of um, this mechanism. But if you were to try to construct something to be able to explain the variation, Right, you would need to aggregate all of these, which would make your, you know, which would make your indicator much more reliable over the entire sample. Sure, and you can aggregate across global central banks and and, exactly. and the global credit system and the euro dollar system, et cetera. I guess what's interesting, right, is that in past cycles, um, because the manufacturing sector and interest interest sensitive sectors had a larger beta on economic changes in economic growth, right? Then private sector credit creation would also, that liquidity from the private sector, changes in that liquidity would have a higher impact on or larger impact on the economy on asset prices. When we sort of shifted more to a, to a service economy that accelerated in the, in the very modern context and those more interest-sensitive, higher beta sectors or more volatile sectors of the economy began to have less of an impact. Going forward, we're still in a services-oriented economy, so private sector credit creation is likely to play a smaller role, so private sector liquidity is likely to play a smaller role, and the, both the Fed and the, and the fiscal balance sheet are also scheduled to contract, so they will probably also play a smaller role, right? So we could be in a situation in 24, 25, 26, when, you know, this, these liquidity indicators may, um, may be more ambiguous about how to read them or what their impact might be on, on the economy and on, and on financial markets. So the, the really interesting thing, actually, when it comes to this, so we, we you know, we, we have trackers for all these things. And uh, when we look through the data, right, what we see is uh, that, the, that indeed the, the public sector policy impulse was negative. But when we actually look through the private sector impulse, through 2022, it actually improved. And the reason it improved was this shock to nominal activity from higher prices with wages not rising commensurate with the price gains, which resulted in, you know, a net benefit to corporations which allowed them to make debt service payments at a pretty, you know, in a pretty comfortable manner. So if we look at, um, if we look at lending from, say, you know, from banks, right? So commercial banks, we actually see that lending to mortgages improved. We see that commercial and industrial loans improved. We see that uh, residential, you know, so construction loans improved. All, all this banking activity actually improved while reserves and cash assets were drained by quantitative tightening. And so the net impact of the banking sector was actually that, you know, um, the banking sector may have contracted, right? But the contraction didn't come because of weakening in pro-cyclical liquidity. It actually just came all from policy. 
And so we see a similar picture actually when we go out to you know corporates and there's a completely separate let's not touch it but intermediary lending and stuff so um but when it comes to corporate activity we actually saw commercial paper issuance ramp up we saw high yield issuance in january in particular ramp up like crazy and we yeah. saw ig issuance all these things you know which are symptoms of procyclical liquidity they all improved in 2022 and so yeah, the, another explanation for that right is that companies were issuing in advance of like it was a massive rush to yeah. issue <laughs> In advance of anticipating large rate increases, right? Yeah. So they yeah. just they built a war chest of cash. Doesn't mean it's going to get spent. It's just they there's a lot of cash on the balance sheet in preparation for a long period of of higher rates. Where so it's going to be hard to. to so the 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 way the way we end up looking at this is we actually try to track how much of it may, makes its way into spending. And so when we look at cash balances across the economy, cash balances have actually decreased. And so there are certain segments of cash balances that have improved. And so I think that part of what you're saying is is true in that, and that's the liquidity creation aspect of it all, right? So when you when you issue this commercial paper, it essentially creates a cash balance, which is used for a payable, and that payable ends up on someone else's balance sheet, and you can't take that money away if the commercial paper defaults, right? And so um, I think that indeed there's an element of that, but a lot of it is actually flowed through and supported activity, right? So there's likely a combination of the two. And I think what you're saying speaks to the okay. lagged effects of policy, right? So this commercial paper maybe was the most sensitive to rise in interest rates because it rolls over so often, but longer dated debt takes a longer time for coupons to rise and things like that. And so I think that part of it is definitely, you know, trying to lock in interest rates at a, you know, more reasonable rate before they really skyrocket. But I think also part of it is just a reflection of nominal activity just being really strong, right? These well, two there was things a are lot of duration issuance too, right? And, and right. yeah, nominal activity is strong because inflation is strong, right? So if you're issuing a bunch of debt and you need, I mean, obviously if you've got year over year inflation um, top line in the 70% range, then you're going to draw down your, your borrowing a lot more quickly, right? So you're going to have a lot less savings. Doesn't mean you're actually buying more units of, of goods or services. But it just every unit of good costs more, right? So you're going to draw down saving. Sure, indeed. And so, you know, you've had drill activity tank, but at the same time, like the purpose of nominal borrowing is nominal spending, right? So um, you, you finance your nominal purchases with a nominal dollar borrowed. And so I think that um, the likelihood, you know, kind of peering around the corner, right? The likelihood that we continue to have this pro-cyclical liquidity continue the way it has is very, very low. And then you enter this regime of, oh, wait, so we have quantitative tightening ongoing. We have a treasury that's probably trying to be a little bit more responsible, right? Like, I think that's, uh, that's probably a fair assumption. And then given these cyclical dynamics, the pass-through of monetary policy, um, the pro-cyclical components of liquidity are likely to suffer, which means that activity is also going to suffer. And that's really, you know, one of the driving forces to what, why we think that economic activity is going to evolve the way that you know we've we've discussed today. Love it. Okay, I've yeah. got to go. I'm already yeah. 15 minutes <laughs> late for what? what? Uh, uh, I was. Thank you so much. That was that was uh, that was an incredible discussion. Absolutely. And, uh, I had so it. much fun, guys. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. On yeah, I'm I'm really uh, enchanted by your framework and the depth of your thinking. So I'm looking forward to uh, digging more into your publications, but also carrying on the conversation live uh, at some point in the future. 
Absolutely. I look forward to it. You know, now you can just continue where we left off. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> All right, guys. Thanks thank so you. Much. Uh-huh. Thank you so much, Adam. Thank you. Great to see you guys. Nice to meet you. Uh-huh. you. Uh, thanks for your incredibly valuable time. That was, that was really cool. Hey, take care, guys, and thank you so much for having me on. Pleasure. Pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you so much.